part of it, if anybody's listening that comes from a working class background, they watch Django, I don't want them to feel guilty that they got that pleasure because, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, I'm identifying with this character. But it's also very important to have a critical eye at what you're watching, you know, and and understand that without understanding it critically, you know, you, you don't want to just be living off of a fantasy that really is not grounded in any sort of a understanding of your position. Welcome to the All Thought is Black Thought podcast. I'm O. And I'm G. Episode number seven was the first of a three-episode series in which G and O discussed the films Django Unchained, 2012, and 12 Years a Slave, 2013. In the first episode, G explains how fantasies of freedom can be constructed by film, and that his first impression of Django focused on its potential to construct a fantasy of violent resistance to slavery that could be useful for black liberation. Quote, people's imagination is shaped, G explains. It's not just that you imagine yourself as being free even if there's no representation of your freedom. Look at how long there's been a representation of black people being unfree and that being normal, unquote. But toward the end of the episode, O began to ask whose fantasies filmmaker Quentin Tarantino really cares about and serves. In today's episode, G and O continue the discussion by comparing the class politics of black films' representation of slavery and violence. G says there is a tension between the working class political demands versus black middle class political demands in Django Unchained and 12 Years a Slave. The brothers define what a genre of film is and describe the expectations of the genres these two films fit into. O says the realistic depiction of slavery's violence in 12 Years a Slave felt like, quote unquote, acknowledgement of the suffering black people have experienced, especially the whipping of Patsy, Lupita Nyong'o. Quote, it's not eye candy, he says. O describes his concerns about Django's action hero individualism serving as a model of resistance to slavery. Quote, whose fantasies, O asks, is Django responsible to? We have to be critical, both of the film and of our enjoyment of the film, unquote. G says that now having inserted Django, a black man, into the heroic action fantasy in the genre of slavery films is, quote unquote, useful to the black political imagination of freedom, as well as useful to our individual black lives. O and G also talk about the difference between Django as a film that fetishizes the violence of slavery versus 12 Years a Slave, a film that handles violence in a manner that is more, quote, responsible to black suffering, unquote, as O says, but also deeply disturbing and heavy. Our sense of... uh these two movies was that they were both very powerful, both both very um, unique and groundbreaking at the time that they came out and everything like that. You know, there's always a danger when you show violence that you're going to show too much and that you're going to almost make light of the violence by showing it too much. I liked the way 12 Years a Slave handled the violence more than I liked the way uh, Django handled the violence, not because of the matter of enjoyment, but you enjoy what you enjoy. Not being critical even of our own enjoyment means that we are giving some amount of power to the people who can create our enjoyment. I think that's how you get uh, a genre like black exploitation films is that it starts out with, 
you know, uh, Melvin Van Peoples, for example, doing a, you know, a Sweet Sweetback's badass song. And then it turns into all these white directors releasing formulaic movies that are just designed to get black people to come in, pay our, pay our money out and, you know, and, and enjoy certain things to where you get to a, a Superfly type movie that's really about individual enjoyment as opposed to the sort of collective enjoyment black people felt from a film like Sweet Sweetback or even like Spook Who Sat By The Door, which is a definitely more collective enjoyment for black people. I felt that Django was centered around showing an individual black hero who's there to serve the enjoyment somewhat of black people, but mainly of white people who like to fancy themselves as liberals like Quentin Tarantino himself is. That, that's a sense that I got from the very first moment of that film, like, um, like immediately after the, the opening credits are rolled, the very first frame that it shows, the, the letters on the screen and everything like that, it says, uh, it says uh, you know, 1858, two years before the Civil War. I felt like that was already kind of showing a disdain for our history, you know, uh, already showing that you're not really doing the research to know that 1858 was three years before the Civil War, because the Civil War started in 1861. That's a small detail, but, like, you, you, you notice that kind of shit, and that, that kind of, like, was already like, eh, okay, you know. And I, and I grant, most people most people can't tell, you know, couldn't tell you when the start of the Civil War was, you know, to the to the year. But it, it, it started working on me then, and that kind of made me notice what enjoyment was being constructed for me, and it made me a little bit like, why? Why Why are you, you know, what story are you going to try to tell and why? And what I think, what I thought ended up happening was a very, you know, individualistic from the first moment when, when Django is released by Dr. King Schultz, you know, um, that that uh, that he's, uh, he's meant to, in, to enjoy his freedom individually. And not to be a part of the liberation of the other black people. They're just kind of left there. Dr. King Schultz tells them, uh, here's the key, uh, and that way's north, and uh, you might want to go uh, take care of that, uh, that, that remaining um, slave trader you know, there. I felt like that was a moment when the, first, the very first fantasy that it had the opportunity to show was already showing that it was being shaped by a white man who did not feel responsible to our history. That, that part right there kind of like made me think, okay, what do I know about Quentin Tarantino? What I knew about him at that point was based on films like Reservoir Dogs, you know, where, where he ends the, you know, a certain character ends up by saying, you know, uh, you know, Sicilians are basically like niggers. And that's the thing that gets him to get his torturer to kill him. Uh, when the torturer didn't want to kill him just yet. Uh, I think about the niggers, you know, that dead nigger story. That wasn't that uh, true. That was true romance. He said that. I'm sorry. Was. You might, that might be. Yep. You're right. That's true romance. You're right. That's yeah. true romance. Yep. Uh, that, you know, that made me think of, uh, of course, of Pulp Fiction with the dead nigger storage and, 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 uh, and, and also, of course, Jackie Brown, which is kind of trying to reprise some of the black exploitation films and things like that by sort of fetishizing a black woman. And then it brings me up to up to that that moment, where, and also of course Kill Bill, which does fetishize to some extent, you know, very sexually attractive, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, women of, of, of different races, but also specifically focused on uh, Vivica Fox, her character and stuff like that. And I, I, it made me think of black people, how black people function as a fantasy in the mind of a particular white man named Quentin Tarantino. It's, it's just written all over some of these things. You know, that kind of uh, took me out of it and made me think, whose fantasies is this film responsible to? Mm-hmm. That was that was the part that um, because I think it's good for us to feel the enjoyment that Fanon tells us we need to feel in order to you know you know in order to do what we need to do which we we need to get free and to right. get free it starts with us imagining our freedom you know right. Um, right. but uh, I, I do think that we should view you know view everything critically. Um, especially when uh, when people in power or like white people are speaking about black people and when they are trying to make black people enjoy how they are speaking about us. So I think we should be, be critical both of the film and of our own enjoyment of the film. Because I, I did feel enjoyment seeing Django, or see, sorry, seeing, seeing the, the guy who was, uh, you know, enslaving Django get his head blown off, even if it was by... A white man, Dr. King Schultz. So, like, first off, I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> when I yeah, first yeah. saw it, I wasn't remembering the actual date of it. And, yeah. you know, pro- and the other part of it, too, is probably I consumed more of that sort of entertainment than you had, you know. Action, action films. Like yeah. Action, Western. Yeah, growing up. You know, I grew up yeah. in the 60s and the 70s and you know, that was the kind of stuff that I enjoyed. And, mm-hmm. you know, I I didn't uh, <laughs> I didn't really start, like, doing really critical academics-type thinking until I was in my 30s, right? I, I was a mm-hmm. construction worker. You know, mm-hmm. I had, you know, it was a sort of a blue-collar experience. So when I go to the movies, you know, whether they got, you know, if it was close to 18-something, I'm really watching it to see, you know, what's going to happen and not looking at that critically. I'm not saying, you know, now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you're not correct because when I think about the movie in hindsight now, it is very it is very individualistically focused on Django. Django is just doing what's good for Django. You know, in the end, he, you know, blows up Candyland and everything. <laughs> and, you know, kills off all the and, and gets on and tells the people that are the enslaved people that are there that you should leave now. And I forget what he tells them exactly, you know. But he's not mm-hmm. he's not a liberation figure, that's for sure. He's on a mission to get Hilda, right? You right. know, and so it's uh, it's it's in the it's in the vein of the sort of the individual hero, no different than a. Uh, Clint Eastwood or uh, Charles Bronson or or John Wayne type character. So mm-hmm. I yeah, I get what you're saying. You know, it's just that right. uh, part part of your ability to see those things though comes from you being you know I think more in that space where you would see those sort of critical details more quickly. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 part of that is a way that you're. Uh, like my, how do I say it? My senses are conditioned 
in a different way coming from a different experience, you know. And right. I and and I understand how you you know how you how those things are important, but it just doesn't automatically uh come to mind if you've been consuming Hollywood, you know, for the last at that point for the last you know, 55 years. You know what I'm saying? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's part of the danger of it, too, a little bit, is that, right. is that we get used to genre expectations. A genre, a genre G-E-N-R-E, just meaning a type, uh, a type of a novel or a type of a film or right. a type of uh, music even, talk of genres of music, too. A genre is a, is a, a type of storytelling there are particular elements of a genre. If you go to a spy film, you're going to expect certain certain things. You know, you're going to expect certain types of music and certain. You know, if you go to a horror movie or a suspense movie, you're going to expect the kind of you know close angle shots that you get, so that when you know Jason leaps out from behind the door and starts charging at the the, the person there, you're shook. You're so shook that you spill your popcorn, stuff like that, right? That's why Get Out is. Uh successful because he met the expectations of the genre and still turned them on their head yeah and i think that the genre is a big a big element of it because you're right i mean i i i grew up man i mean i did like action films like i, I remember liking like top gun i remember liking you know anything denzel washington was in pretty much you know uh Randy murphy movies and stuff like that you know beverly hills cop and that kind of stuff but right. it was really you know when I when I got to grad school at that point in my life, when you and I met and everything, and when and when uh, you know we were talking about Django and when we were talking about Twelve Years a Slave, it was right when I was in the middle of writing my dissertation. So that that critical portion of my mind was very very highly tuned in ways that it hadn't been in previous portions of my life because for the most part, um, you know, uh, we are taught that movies are just for us to enjoy. That, that's, right. that's really all right. they are. They're supposed to be these kind of innocent amusements. We should pay a little bit of money for them. Well, now it's a lot bit of money, and right now we can't go see anything. But you know, right, right. on yeah. Netflix. But you know, but uh, but we, you know, and you're supposed to go and be able to somewhat escape a little bit. It takes you out of yourself. Um, particularly, particularly, action movies are meant for escape. Yeah, you know, yeah. So yeah. you go to an action movie so that you can you know, get the satisfaction of seeing something happen to the bad guy that you mm-hmm. couldn't do in real life, but you've been longing to do. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so in a way, and then, you know, on, on another level, you know, Tarantino is not the most highly educated person, I don't think. How he learned to make films was basically from working in a video store and watching, you know, just tons of movies, you know, and... Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, I, I like I'm not trying to make an excuse for him, but I yeah, bet yeah. that dude, I bet that dude didn't even know when the Civil War ended, really, you know, yeah. like yeah, no, and, no, and it was right. an important aspect to the story that he wanted to tell, you know, he wanted to tell a black hero story, you know, where the mm-hmm. hero gets the bad guys, which he sees as a slaver, you know, which mm-hmm. is right, it's right, it's coming from. Uh, his liberal fantasy. I think he'd identify himself as liberal. He's, you know, sort of taken a liberal stance on a lot of stuff over the years, you know? So yeah, yeah, I agree, you know, but I just, you know, on the other hand though, there's a lot of people that, you know, won't be as attuned to all those things as you and a lot of the people that 
had that response to it that you did compared to my initial response to the movie. Django is a movie that I still get a lot of enjoyment out of. There, there's there are particular scenes that right. I just, if I could just see that, that would right. be right. That would be it, you know. And I, right. I think it's, Dr. King Schultz pretty much tells Django where he's going. He he rescues him from this coffle of enslaved right. people to go and uh, fulfill a bounty against these people that he knows Django knows called the Brittle Brothers. Right. And, and they go uh, to the plantation where the Brittle Brothers are working. They're disguised, you know. They're, they're you know they're trying to like make like there's something different. It's uh, uh, than than what they are. And uh, Django goes up to one of the Brittle Brothers, and right as he's right as this Brittle Brother is about to whip a black woman, uh, apparently for breaking some eggs, Django calls out his name. Uh, I think he says John Brittle, you know, right. and, and Brittle, John Brittle turns around, you know, right as he's about to whip this woman, turns around and the camera angle holds and zooms slowly, you know, on Django where he's just standing there looking very heroic, looking, looking broad shoulders, his stance is very, you know, rooted and stuff like that. And then he just walks up on that dude and he shoots him, you know, then he turns around as the other Brittle brother is trying to, is fumbling, trying to grab his gun. And Django picks up the whip and just starts whipping that white boy, just whipping right, him. Right. That was that was just like uh, probably a good a good uh, good minute minute and a half of just sheer enjoyment for me. It looked like something straight out of a a, a comic book brought to life. And I, right. I, I felt like that's something that, that Tarantino was going for, and I feel like he very he, he succeeded at it. Yeah, it's almost like a graphic novel, which is, yeah, and the other thing is that it's unrealistic in the sense that it sort of plays on that notion of American manhood, where the individual can go and destroy a system by himself, right? So, you know, it's all all pure fantasy, like it's realistically, if we were making uh, sort of the ideal sort of uh, political imaginary for black people's liberation. It would have to yes. be, you know, uh, a community-based response. You know, it would have to be organizing that went on and people playing a role in their specific positions. There, there'd be spies and there'd be sabotage, and then there'd come the ultimate moment where they gather the weapons and they destroy the plantation or something. Not one guy comes along, <laughs> yes. Yes. you know, kills all off the all the slave masters off, and and then blows up the place like the shootout at the end, where yeah. not the very not the final shootout, but the shootout just before the final shootout, he shoots mm-hmm. all these people, <laughs> and mm-hmm. he manages to get out alive, right? And right. you know, it's it's definitely uh, it's a it's part of the genre. Like you said, there's expectations of genre and there's expectations of action. So he has to build to a certain climax and then he has to, he has to appear to be succeeding and then he failed. And then he, he overcomes one last time where he actually succeeds in the end. He blows up Candyland after he kills all these people by himself with just two guns. You yes. Know? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, a, it's a superhero fantasy. 
you know, and yeah, there is, I, I agree. There's harm in those sort of fantasies. If you're not aware that it's a fantasy. So, cause there's like two ways I feel about it. Like I agree, you know, the, the, all of the problematics that you pointed out about it. And then at the same time to insert that sort of a figure into your, uh, the collective imaginary has useful purposes to it. I think it's the devil's in the details. It's, right. it's, uh, it's what else is around it, little stuff, big stuff around it. But if I could just isolate this moment at, um, it's about 35 minutes and 30 seconds into the film, you know, uh, where Django's, you know, walking up on this dude and calls him out, John Brittle. And then and the dude right. turns around and then there's just a slow zoom in on, on Jamie Foxx, you know, uh, Django standing there, you know, ready, ready for action, ready, you know, and like the 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 music even sounds heroic right you know it's like it's right right you know you know those are things that usually are reserved for you know you're expecting to see white people you're expecting to see a white man standing there you know and and yet the way this story is told and the the way it's located on a plantation with the moss hanging off the trees and stuff like that and other enslaved black people standing in the background and things like that. It's like, wow, you know, these, these are these moments, but I mean, you know, yeah, the unrealism of it is probably part of the enjoyment of it. Honestly, right. You know? right. Because there are moments, you know, realism, when we think about it, you know, realism is just another element of film film, right. obviously something that, you know, didn't happen. I mean, we're talking about feature film, not talking about documentary. We're talking about feature films, is something that obviously didn't happen, but and even you, even documentary is constructed to a big degree. It, you it know, really is. It's just in case someone's listening, you know, yeah. it, you know that's that. If you were to take a course on film, you'd understand mm-hmm. how constructed documentary is as well. It so, is. Yeah. It is. Every yeah. everything with film is is constructed at, at at the very least because the camera can only point in a certain number of directions at once. It generally can only exactly. in one direction. And so what else is behind the camera is leaving out and things like that, you know, all right. that stuff. But like the, there are, you know, so, so to say that it's unrealistic doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. Right. <laughs> you, know, right. It, it, you know, some shit like this could still happen. Like there, there were moments in my life, I've never like, you know, gotten to do what Django did and nothing, but like, you know, there are moments in my life when I have taken a stand on something. Right. And I could have gone down. I could have even, you know, died, you know, uh, you know, because black people can die from anything in this, you know, in, in this, <laughs> you know, but like, right. but you, you take a stand and you're standing there solid in your truth. And it almost feels like there's music behind you that's saying, Yes, this is what you were meant to do. This is the right. moment where you go justice, even no matter what comes after it, right? And that, and so you, when I feel drawn into this moment, I think that's what I'm feeling. Even though I can also say, you know, it is somewhat unrealistic because that's the genre expectation of. Right, and but but there is uh, what you're describing is that fantasy that can you know, be deployed in your personal life that moves you to do correct action. And that is a useful fantasy. You know? Yeah. I, yeah. And so, I mean, part of it, if anybody's listening that comes from a, 
working class background. They watch Django. I don't want them to feel guilty that they got that pleasure because, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, I'm identifying with this character. Like, yeah, get Absolutely. that motherfucker, you know. Yeah. But, but, yeah. It's, but, it's, but it's also very important to have a critical eye at what you're watching, you know, and and understand uh, that without understanding it critically, you know, you, you don't want to just be living off of a fantasy that uh, really is not uh, grounded in any sort of uh, understanding of your position. Yeah. It's not that it has to be completely and totally factually accurate because no representative form, whether it be drama on stage or literature on, you know, writing or film, right. you know, is 100%, you know, true to life. The only right. thing that's true to life is life itself, you know, right. like, you wouldn't even go to the film if it was going to be a completely realistic, naturalistic film because you'd be like hella bored because most right. of the time we spend is boring. You know, it's not, right. like, you know, but um, but you're right. I think that there are like useful fantasies, even in the lead up to this moment, when I'm talking about the devil is in the details, like right as we're leading up, right as uh, Django was walking up on John Brittle to prevent him from whipping this woman. Right. There's a moment that, that, that like is even a little bit problematic there too because he's, as he's walking up, he's passing through the trees and everything like that, and there's a black woman on a swing. Right. Swinging, at, at, which, which, of course, is a reprisal of that old, old image from Birth of a Nation and, and the Gone with the Wind and stuff like that, that we were happy darkies on the plantation. You know? Right. I, mean, right. I, I just don't understand why Tarantino had to include it in there, except that what he's really telling is his fantasy. I just feel like it's or, mine because of this or, moment with Django. Mm -hmm. or, he, or he's just playing with the genre, too. You know? Or he's just playing with the genre? Yeah, yeah, by putting some of these scenes in uh, that uh, makes the genre sort of uh, distorted to what it typically would be, you know. I'm not right. trying to, you know, because, I mean, that is part of what he does is play with genre in a way, so. It's true. And that that's where I think the devil's in the details, though, is that, is that you know, if uh, if you or I played with genre, we would play with it very differently because of what our positionality on this stuff is, because we're coming at it from, you know, black. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I think th those are those moments that kind of show, OK, so this is what occupies uh, Quentin Tarantino's imagination about slavery is a black woman on a swing um, like that. Those are, you know. That is just as much part of Quentin Tarantino's imagination as Django beating the shit out of, you know, whatever brittle brother with the whip after he shot the other brittle brother in the chest. And I, and I think that mix of things is the thing that's sort of jarring for me, because I, I do think we should be able to feel that enjoyment that we feel from just seeing this stuff. But we should also be mindful of what other stuff is getting, you know, it's like it's like when you um, when you drink something and you taste the taste you want to taste. But there's also a little something extra in there. Right. And you you might not even taste that thing, but you'll feel it later, right? You know. Yeah. If you taste uh, if you taste ketchup in your cherry soda, and you're wondering where that ketchup taste come from, you're wondering yeah. if, the, if the glass is dirty or did somebody put something in your drink? You know. So. Yeah. yeah, but you know, yeah. I mean, that's why you know that's why it's important to develop a critical. Uh, taste palette, you know. Right. If, right. if you have, 
if you don't have a sense, like if if all you've ever grown up eating is McDonald's or something, you know, then you may not right. have a, a critical taste palate to be able to tell, you know, a certain taste apart and be like, mm, is that is that ketchup? You'd just be right. like, right, that tastes weird. Oh well, at least it's a Coca Cola, right? You know, right. Like, and and there's <laughs> a and there's a there's the important thing of having that palate is for your protection. So in a way, you know, like you can detect that there's something foreign in there. And so the way that you're looking at uh, Django is detecting yeah. that foreign element that you're not able to identify why he did it, but it's out yeah. of place and it doesn't fit in right, you know. Yeah, so, the black woman yeah. on the swing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but that's, I'm just saying that that's an important thing to do. That's the reason, you know, you do have this ability to be critical in this way, critical in the sense of not just criticizing him, but looking at the details in in minute detail, like looking at the little parts and how they fit together or don't fit together. And I, you know, I want to give credit to the little details that he did right too, like what you're right. saying, like it, um, I think I clocked it at about nine minutes into the film, that they're showing the slave, the, the, the coffle of black, you know, enslaved men walking and it shows, uh, right, Dr. King Schultz is releasing Django from the shackles, and it shows how they cut into his ankles. The shackles cut into your ankles right. at about yeah. nine they, minutes. And, yeah. and like you were saying, they didn't show that. Yeah, yeah, they gave attention to that detail. Yeah, To that detail, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think you said something about how bad that metal is on the body. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he sort of made reference yeah. to, the, to the infection that can occur from that. So He said that yeah. iron is nasty business. Yeah, that, thank you. Yeah, what he said at that, at that moment, like right as he's releasing him, I didn't notice that as much because, like you're saying, I, I have I have a degree of uh, like education about history, you know, where I had kind of gotten to study some of that stuff before, and I wasn't aware at the time when we first talked about this movie, I wasn't aware how few people understood that. I, what I was noticing about that moment was, oh, great. So here's a white man freeing a black man, you know, from slavery. The white man, he gets to do the first killing of, you know, the white, the white slaveholders, not Django. And I, I was noticing those sort of things and being like, man, you know, hey. And, and of course, I was still like, you know, mad because they had said the, the Civil War, you know, you know, thing about the Civil War that, you know, right. nobody but a historian would really notice. But, you know, but I didn't pay as much attention when I first saw it to the shackles cutting into Django's ankles. I think today I probably noticed that because the type of job that I'm working right now, I pay attention to all those details about the body. Right. You know, when you work in construction trades and you work in, you know, on your, your knees, your ankles, your back, your elbows, your wrists, everything, you know, hurt right. shoulders all the time, you know, so you, you notice those things because that's the part that you identify with. I, I was identifying the, the historical elements of right. it and things like that. Not that I was looking for it to be 100% realistic. I mean, you know, come on, you're making movies for the wine scene uh, studios and stuff like that, the wine scene right. company. You, they, they have people who could have, right up to the very last moment before that movie was released, changed that text. that one thing. Yeah, well, well, yeah. You gotta say it's two years before, when it's three years before, you know, when the Civil War started, but you know, but like that's the kind of thing that I noticed at the time that I watched that. And right. uh, and the and so the ankle the shot of the ankle the and the, the the shackles being released from the ankle caused me to be like 
oh yeah, there's a they they've got to show a white man freeing a black man. They got to show the white man doing the violence, but not noticing that oh wait, this is really probably the first time. You know, I don't maybe paid attention to that. Yeah, yeah, maybe they showed a little bit with uh with Kunta Kinte back in 1977 roots, like some of the pains of, but they didn't like show a real real close up the way Quentin Tarantino did. No, I agree. I, I agree. There's a lot. There's a lot to be critical of in, in terms of that film, and there's a lot of uh, ideology that's packed in there in terms of the individual, and yeah. that that comports with American ideologies of individuality and masculinity. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty to be critical of, but I was thinking maybe we should give a little attention to Twelve Years a Slave too. I mean, the one thing for me, first impressions of Twelve Years a Slave is that it, even after I watched it recently, it's such an overwhelming experience that just weighs on you in a way that Django couldn't because Django, uh, Django releases you uh, from bondage in a sort of psychic way, whereas uh, 12 Years a Slave, from the minute he's enslaved until the very, you know, to the credits are on the screen, you know, you, re- you remain enslaved even even when he's brought back, you know that it's only sort of he's on bond. You know, he got a bond, but he could be found guilty again at any moment if white people decide. You know, if he was captured again, would he be able to get off of a, you know, off of another 12-year sentence because he has a, uh, a white patron that would come down and give him freedom? And for that, you know, that reason, I mean, it's really the more, uh, it's the obvious uh, accuracy and realistic portrayal that makes it such a troubling thing to watch. But at the same time, just like Django sort of broke through in terms of the representation of the brutality, uh, 12 Years a Slave was is a unique and a breakthrough film for me in terms of the way it represents the totality of his enslavement. At the point that he's enslaved, he, he realizes, and you realize, even though he was a middle class, he would be the equivalent of someone that might live in Arenda today. You know mm. what I'm saying? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Arenda being a, a, a relatively uh, very, very wealthy, wealthy Yeah, you think about Yeah, area. that's where it's in the Bay Area. Yeah, Orinda is right out, you know, on the other side of the uh, Caldecut Tunnel, which is uh, in the Bay Area. It's on the uh, a tunnel that connects Oakland to uh, Lafayette, Orinda, which is a very wealthy area. So anyway, the reason I'm using that example, though, is that when you look at the way they depict uh, Solomon Northrop, he was having a successful, very upper-middle-class experience, the way that the family was dressed, the the house that they lived in, you know, the ways that he had relationships with the market owners and store owners and so forth. He was very, very middle-class, so much so that the uh, I think about the enslaved black man that was fascinated by him, and he walked away from his master and walks into the store and sort of stares at, uh, Northrop and his family, you know, yeah. almost as if he doesn't know what he's looking at, you know. Mm-hmm. 
so the one thing that I that like really stuck with me was the way that uh, there was. Uh, I guess it's sort of the sort of the comfort that uh, that Solomon Northrup had in his life, at least the way that uh, Steve McQueen depicted it. That there was a sort of a just he was taking it almost as if he was taking that freedom for granted in a, in a way that I kind of identify today in terms of some upper middle-class black people that, you know, will criticize poor and working class black people for a lack of responsibility or whatever the case might be. You know, the criticism sort of forgets their level and degree to which that, you know, none of us really, really exist in a free state in American society as long as because, you know, so much of what we experience is, you know, it's not about what we do. It's not definitely not about the character of, a, you know, and the way that we behave. It's a point that when, you know, they, a person sees you and or they make a racial identification of you that limits your possibility to do anything that they think is outside of the range of your racial possibility. And, you know, and so there's a way that a lot of black people, I think, really do their best to try to escape that reality and ignore that reality. And I think that was really captured in uh, 12 Years a Slave. It was a brutal, brutal reality that I felt after I watched that film. And, mm -hmm. it, and it definitely had a real psychological effect on me. But I, you know, just as much as I appreciated the representation of the brutality in Django, and they did, you know, and that the same thing was there in uh, Twelve Years a Slave. But there was also a psychological brutality that they really captured, that Steve McQueen really captured, and the actors really captured in Twelve Years a Slave that I hadn't seen before. I really, I really appreciated it, but I couldn't consume it too frequently. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, that would be interesting to, like, compare, you know, which population of people watches 12 Years a Slave five times, you know, in a month or something like that. <laughs> yeah, could you do population. it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Could you even do it? Another population, you know, watches uh, Django Unchained five times in a month. Right. See what the differences were from the beginning of the month to the end of the month in terms of things, you know, in terms of like psychological well-being, but probably also physical well-being, things like okay. blood pressure and, you know, how much sleep you get and things, the quality of sleep you get, things like that, you know? I mean, one one thing that I think the psychological... Uh, real, real quick, real quick, yeah. I think you could probably bench 20 more pounds if you watch Django that many times a month. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think your <laughs> muscle mass would increase. <laughs> and man, hey, if I just watched that one scene from Django, yeah, <laughs> that's that does that does it right there, boy. I mean, you know, and I think again, you know, the genre expectations, you know, the action film is what Django is. It's clearly an action western. Right. You know, Tarantino called it a Southern because it's not really, you know, in the West, it's in the South. But, you know, um, versus 12 Years a Slave, which is really more of like a, a, a drama. But yeah. I would even call it a, a, a horror 
drama or suspense in some ways because right. it is um i think i was watching an interview with steve mcqueen and, and he said um he said he was thinking a lot about the diary of anne frank you oh, know, thinking true. about like people yeah. hiding out from the holocaust in the time when he chose this film he actually said that it was his wife who suggested the the novel to him and i think he was might have been in uh he might have been in amsterdam at the time which i think was where anne frank was like that there's a horror to it but it's really told in the form of kind of a, a, a drama, you know? Right. So the, the the only comparable scene to that scene I was talking about where, where Django, you know, kills one brittle brother and beats the shit out of the other one with his own whip is a far more realistic, you know, in terms of how it depicts fights and stuff like that. Usually, you know, pretty quick and then it's done with. And the horror comes at the end as the uh, the enforcement of, you know, white uh, basically yes. police are coming in on him and stuff like yes. that. But there is this one scene, man. There is it, it is, you know, at, at 46 minutes into 12 Years a Slave where Solomon Northup beats the shit out of this carpenter who's fucking with him called Tibbets. Right. He just, right. you know, Tibbets have been riding his ass all this time about, oh, your, your siding, your, the boards that you're putting up for siding ain't straight. Right. He goes, they're straight, they're straight as fuck. What are you talking about? And stuff like right. that. And right. Tibbets kicks him out and stuff he like that. He didn't straight as fuck, though. <laughs> no, he didn't straight as fuck. He didn't. <laughs> because this film, 12 Years a Slave, it is realistic in a lot of senses. And in another sense, it, it chooses to depart from realism. It's going to show the, the beating that he puts on on uh, Tibbets, but it's not going to show, like, his his rush of, uh, of enjoyment. And it, it shows that in a kind of realistic way, which is still pretty amazing. It's almost one of those moments where uh, truth is stranger than fiction because, you know, he lived to tell about it. You know, uh, you know, many enslaved people beat the shit out of white people. Many, many enslaved people have resisted this white supremacist, you know, uh, slavery and you know, racist-ass architecture that is America or that is, you know, slavery in the Americas. But not a lot of them necessarily lived to tell about it. Most of them did not. Most of them were killed as punishment for that. But, you know, there is that enjoyment that comes from knowing that he lives to tell about it. But in the moment you're watching it, it's like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, you got oh, but yeah. no, but they're going to get you. Boy. And then the way that they get him after that, uh, right. basically like a, a semi-lynching, yes. you know, yeah. that shit right there, man, it would yeah. be... Yeah, because the thing when I was when I was watching that, I I really when I watched him beat Tibbetts, I was thinking, oh, yeah. oh no, you messed up. Like I was, <laughs> it wasn't there was like there wasn't no pleasure in, in it for me because I was thinking mm -hmm. they're gonna get him. That was immediately yeah. what my thought was, and mm -hmm. you know, that that's the mm -hmm. difference. That's one of the differences between. Django and uh, 12 Years a Slave is that there was no point where, at least for me, there was no point where I like got that sort of filmic pleasure of seeing a little bit of payback because you know the payback was going to cost even more. It was going to be a higher cost, right? And mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so I was mm -hmm. all, and like when you say it was like, uh, it, it did feel almost like man, like, don't do, I almost felt like saying, don't do it, don't do it, you know, like, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> keep your control, man, don't give in, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 it does, it, it, like, um, like we said in previous episodes, you know, it kind of fucks with your high, 
You know, <laughs> you're expecting the high of that enjoyment, you know, uh, of seeing somebody get, you know, get a beating, you know, and, and when you do beat somebody's ass in real life, the way you imagine yourself to be uh, is closer to Django right. uh, beating up, uh, beating up uh, brittle, the Brittle Brothers than it is to what we see in uh, 12 Years a Slave when, when, uh, when Northup beats up uh, Tibbetts. Right, so, right. Yeah. So we, we picture ourselves as heroes of our own lives. So that, that's, that's true. I think we do identify more with Django when he's beating these slaveholders up. And, you know, yeah. Um, so tell me, after you watched, mm-hmm. after you watched uh, 12 Years a Slave, what was the sort of, not like very specific, details but like your overall feeling like what was your affect after you came out of that movie (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. i think i felt i felt acknowledged it's kind of the first thing i i felt um i felt that like wow now hollywood is really (coughs) listening to listening to our pain you know, like it's it's it sucks to feel pain that's held inside because your reality isn't being acknowledged, and and mm-hmm. that that part you know really grates at me a lot uh, because I I do watch a lot of films and read a lot of narratives and stuff like that you know or a lot of you know you know thinking and stuff like that that does not acknowledge black people at all and and so to to see it. And to feel that there's this overwhelming sadness that I always feel, but finally mm-hmm. this overwhelming sadness is acknowledged by the movie that I that I've watched. You know mm-hmm. that that's that was kind of my my initial impression after watching you know Twelve Years a Slave, even though. Yeah, you you don't feel the 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 visual pleasure. You don't feel it's it's not eye candy. It's not gonna it's not gonna give you that that rush of pleasure. But it does make you feel. Now you're hearing me, motherfucker. Especially because of the the scene that occurs toward the end that I thought was really unusual in the film in in in, in the world of slavery films. The scene of the whipping uh, of of Patsy. Right. You know, Right, which is this this long? Uh, it's it's a long take. It's a long take that doesn't cut away. It doesn't edit it. It just keeps you in that moment, and it goes yeah. from one person to the next. It switches angles, and then when it shows the whip striking in in slavery movies, one of the genre expectations of a slavery movie is that there's going to be a whipping scene, and what you're going to see is you're going to see a person with the whip, usually a white man, sometimes not a white man, but you know, uh, they're going to haul back with the whip in hand, and they're going to throw it. The camera is going to uh, cut away from that angle. The editors are going to switch to the other angle, and you're going to see usually a shot of the face of the person who's being, whose back is being whipped. So you're not even going to see the whip actually touch their back. You're going to see the face of the person, and you're going to see them scream out in pain. Right. It's, just, it's, it's on the actor to make you feel that pain, right? Right. Lupita Nyong'o has all those acting chops and she still gets and she gets to use them in this film because it's such a long, a long take that it does get to show the face. But what is unique in this moment at about an hour and 50 minutes into 12 Years a Slave, it does uh, use 
some kind of special effects, uh, whether it be uh, makeup, uh, or, you know, and prosthetics or CGI, you know, computer generated uh, imaging, it shows the flesh being torn out of her back. And I thought that is, that is unique. Uh, I, I, I felt, I felt from that, 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 that is like actually honoring, like there, there's a way that realism isn't just for like scientific, you know, sort of, um, you know, Oh, isn't that interesting kind of thing? No, it's like the, the, the emotions, uh, of how we feel about slavery are wrapped up in some way. I feel like in seeing what happens, what really happens, not having any sanitized version of it. But what happens when you whip somebody? Like even Django didn't show what whipping was doing when whipping when when Django was whipping that brittle brother. It didn't it right. didn't really show the scars forming on his face. Even though I know I saw the whip hit his face a bunch of times. But this this film, the beating, the the, the whipping of uh, of Patsy, it shows and it keeps you in it with all that emotion. To me, that really felt like acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. You you see what's in, in in a similar way to kind of how. It sounds like seeing the the shackle eating into the skin on his ankle, on Django's ankle, you know, made you and a lot of other people who noticed it see, you know, feel. And and me later on when I when I finally was like, oh yeah, shoot, I didn't even trip over that, but that actually right. is, you know, right. serious, you know. But 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 I did notice it in Twelve Years a Slave, and it did kind of center on that. So it kind of centered on the black suffering. It didn't just show up for a quick minute. It, it like it made the major scene, the climactic moment of that uh, film kind of center on that. After that moment, that's the moment that Solomon breaks his violin, you know, he right. breaks his violin, which is kind of his connection to his old self, his connection to whiteness, basically, right. thing that's allowed him to have kind of a special favor with different masters and stuff like that. After that moment is kind of when, uh, you know, Patsy tells him to, to like, looks up to him and stuff like that and is basically telling him, kill me. You know, um, like all these things that happen after that uh, really made an impression on me deeply of saying, this is why you need black filmmakers telling black stories like slavery. Right. And I was like, I don't want to see this shit again for a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> I thought it was interesting you're saying, though, that you felt uh, it acknowledged uh yeah, I didn't really have that feeling. I it wasn't uh, the. I'm trying to think about even the concept of acknowledgement. Like, have I ever really? You know, it's sort of hard for me to think that I've ever dealt with the idea of acknowledgement as much as uh, you know. There's a way that I would just like to be left alone, and you know, whatever happened happened. And, you know, whether you acknowledge it or not, let's just sever the connection. But yeah, it's, it's the concept of uh, a moment of acknowledgement, that is, that's that's different, you know, that's a different thing than what I would think about. And it is also sort of hinges on uh, deeply embedded phil- philosophical issue, right? That, you know, part of, part of being human is the acknowledgement. You know, it would be important to me. Uh, it is an, the the aspect of being acknowledged is much more important to me at this stage of my life than it was at other parts of my life. You know, and I wonder how much of that has to do with going through college and reading a different type of literature 
and exposed to different ideas than I would have had, you know, previous to that. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is uh, sort of part of the construct of black subjectivities, right? That you see that you see that as being part of uh, some aspect of, or the difference I think between a more middle class political demand versus uh, you know the quote unquote black underclass and the black black poor. Like the like you live, you know, when you're in in that position, you're living a life that's unacknowledged and you really don't care about the I'm just speculating right now, but I'm gonna go ahead and <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead and speculate, right? But there's a way yeah, that you don't care about the uh acknowledgement as much as just getting the shit that you need and you want. You know what I'm saying? Like that's so that's sort of an intangible. You know, and so it's interesting, but it's important. I'm not saying that it's not important because that acknowledgement is part of, you know, the way the lack of acknowledgement is the way that they're able to dehumanize so many people and treat us the way they do. But That's it's what I feel. yeah, yeah. But it's just not. Yeah, it's interesting that that would be an important thing that uh, has to almost just like film cultivates uh, a political understanding of yourself through those fantasies that it projects. I think what you're, what you're indicating to me is that, that the way that that uh, is cultivated through an educational process and through a sort of a cultural experience that recognizes the importance of acknowledgement. So, yeah. 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 I mean, like, just like with the, just like with the shackle, the shackle on the ankle, you know, right. Like right. It, you know, pe- people people can come up with these sanitized ideas about what slavery was slash right, is because right. it's still going on. You know, um, yeah, and I think you know one of the system. How much will we see about what happens yep. to bodies that are imprisoned if there was really a deep look at it? You know, instead of yeah. the representation of what the prison experience. And I thought the 12 Years a Slave did that, not just at this particular moment. It started doing it early on, like around 25 minutes into the film. Solomon's been taken captive, kidnapped into, into slavery. And I think they arrived at New Orleans and the, they're sitting by the port waiting for the uh, the auctioner who's going to take them to his particular market. And they're sitting there and, he, and Solomon's just staring. Chiwetel Ejiofor is just staring. And it shows you some flashes of what he's staring at. And what it shows is it shows a whole lot of people who have severe scars and amputations like this one dude has what looks like a, a keloid scar that's basically over half of his face right almost like right. he was beaten in his face with a cat of nine tails in his face right and then um cat, shows cat of nine tails is a whip yeah. yes there's a whip that has that has sep- you know several different you know tails right. on it so that it can beat a broader area of you as right. opposed to a bull whip, which is going to hit one area of you real, real hard. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it shows these people standing, they're shackled, they're chained, their hands behind their backs, two people, and it shows the scars on their backs all keloided up. It shows this uh, this one dude sitting there with an amputated uh, hand. Right. He's just sitting there. And it, it's those ways of hinting at the violence that is to come. You've already seen some of the violence that, that goes into... You know, this dude uh, in Washington, D.C. actually beating Solomon 
you know, on his back with a paddle right. with a whip of some kind. Till you know, but it really shoots. Yeah, till the paddle shatters. Yeah. But it but it shows that that physical horror, you know, which is which is gripping and makes you anticipate what's going to happen to Solomon. Right. You know, what's yes. happened to this you identify with foreshadowing his future. Yeah. I don't say that because I think violence needs to be shown more. I mean, the whole film is is overwhelming, like you say, but it's not fetishizing the violence. You know, it's right. not making the violence into a big spectacle that is going to spend a whole bunch of time. You know. Uh, showing these these things as though as though it's an enjoyment to see violence. It shows the violence in a way that's aware that you feel that pain as your own, and then it cuts away from it to show how you got to get back into living. You know, right, right, yeah. And that that fetishizing of the violence is uh, what uh, the Wild Bunch does and what Tarantino does. It's part of a genre. That genre of film does actually fetishized violence and that was a criticism of the wild bunch is the way that it fetishized that so there is a yeah you're right there is a difference in the way that it's depicted and it's a that difference in depiction sort of hangs with you uh yeah. longer in a much different way it's uh it's sort of a, the existential violence of the enslaved that you're constantly dealing with from the very beginning well not from the very beginning the very beginning is more, <laughs> I'd say that's the when Solomon Northrup is actually living in his fantasy versus the reality that's lurking right behind the door for him, you know. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the very, the very beginning, the very beginning of the movie is is he he's in the first scene. It shows is that he's enslaved. He's getting told right. getting told how to cut uh, sugar cane. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not really the, not in terms of the very, you know, the technical beginning, but the sort of the beginning sequence of before he's actually on the plantation. So, it's true. Yeah, because because yeah. this, the film uh, functions in a way that kind of uh, uh, 12 Years a Slave reverses the typical narrative that a lot of people have fantasized about Black history, the old right. uh, John Hope Franklin, uh, John Hope Franklin, the you know major Black historian for a long time, wrote the the, the central textbook of Black history classes called "From Slavery to Freedom." Right. Well, the, that would be the Black Master Narrative. Yeah. That is, that's the Black yeah. Master Narrative, and 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 it shows, like you're saying, that lurking behind that door is the reality, which is that you can just as easily reverse that master narrative and take black people from freedom to slavery and it doesn't even require you to do nothing it's just the blink of an eye right right the, 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 sip, the sip of a drink that's been that's been poisoned with something to to put you to sleep you know? yeah because basically what he's showing is that you're a slave and waiting all the time always yeah all yeah. the time and that's what mm -hmm. that's another part of what was so disturbing about that film and you know, it's that's why you know it's a great film because it is so deeply disturbing, um, mm -hmm. you know, in the ways that it uh, shows all the contradictions. Like uh, what Alfre Woodard, yeah, yeah, yes. her her character, you know, like these contradictions Whoa. can exist all at the same time, right? Like you understand why she would just accept that existence wouldn't like wouldn't trouble it or anything but there was people like Harriet Tubman that existed 
sort of contemporaneously to that, right? You know, you have to question the ethic of someone that would be there in that position, you know? Yes. Because basically, and they, they've already shown you by that point in the film when they show Alfred Woodard's character, who was uh, whose name in the film is Mistress Harriet Shaw. She's actually a black woman who has been elevated by her master into a mistress, even yeah. though that basically requires her to sit on the porch while other enslaved Africans serve her. And she might be a nice, friendly ear to Patsy, you know, Peter Nyong'o's character, and right. Solomon, right. but she's still positioned on that plantation as a mistress. But it's just on that plantation. Right. And what, it, what the thing the film shows you that's very contradictory about her character, it already showed you somebody earlier in the film who had previously been one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Eliza, her name is Eliza. She's played by uh, Adepero Oduye, uh, who's an American actor. lost her children, right? Yep. She's the one who lost her children. Right. Yep. Right. Uh-huh. Because yeah. she had been favored by her master because of, because she was basically sleeping with him. And basically, you know, he, he showered all kind of gifts on her and her children and all kind of clothes. She's wearing fine clothes, even when we see her being, being put into slavery, being sold into slavery. But, yeah. but what happened was her master died, got sick and died, and the master's daughter took over, and the master's daughter never liked her. Right. And the master's daughter just sells her off into slavery, tells her that she's taking her to, to the town to process some freedom papers, and when she gets to town, she is immediately taken into slavery. Right. It's almost that could happen to her, yeah. to, 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 to Woodard's character. Yeah, that's so much of what I that I like really appreciate about that film. Is so much mm-hmm. of it seems like he's writing a metaphor of the black middle class. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know. I know some people get pissed off by that idea, but so much of that Same. film is about uh, black people that you know are going along ignoring the plight of other people, and it's not like you're ignoring it because of class. You're not ignoring it because of religion you're ignoring it because you're black and you have to ignore the fact that that could be you if anything changed just a little bit you know yep. at any moment you could be that same person what if you're a very successful attorney but you know you get blackballed within the industry of law and then mm-hmm. then you have to be you know put down in the ghetto you know it's like yeah ghetto being sort of the worst state of slavery as if there's you know, levels of hell, like purgatory versus, you know, <laughs> the 12th degree of hell, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there's like so many times, like, even the fact that when Northrop gets back, you know, I, I think I said this earlier, but the idea that he has, uh, if it wasn't for him having those relationships to upper class white people, he would have never been free. You know, yes. if, it, if it wasn't for the yes. fact that he could write and could communicate mm-hmm. on paper mm-hmm. and that education, you know, which to a certain degree, even to this day, uh, good education is a function of your class position. You know, Absolutely. you know, when you look at public Absolutely. education, if you go to the wrong mm-hmm. school, you, you'll, you'll be doing good just to know how to read, you know, and yeah. you know what your experience is in that school at any school. As a black kid, you, you can very well come out and not know how to read. Look how many athletes come out, you know, and end up having these basketball careers or football careers, but are illiterate, you know, and they went through college. 
Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, yep. the fact that he, the way that McQueen uh, positions those characters in that film is like an ongoing critique of black class relations because Solomon is able to leave and uh, what was uh, Lapita's character's name again? Uh, Patsy. Patsy. Patsy had no way to escape. There's no way you can't you can't imagine in that universe any way of her achieving her freedom ever. And she was, no matter how hard she worked, right? She was taking twice as much cotton as the men, yeah. and she was getting fucked by the by the by the slave master. Right. And you know she um, and I think Alfred Woodard even somewhat counsels her in some ways to be patient with the fact that she keeps being raped. Uh, yes. in, in order to kind of say you could end up like me, you could you could get you could be elevated like me. Right. But that's never by the end of the film we see that's never going to happen with her. Yeah, not as long as the uh, the uh, owner's wife is present is definitely not going to yes. happen. Yeah. You know, when you look at Django versus Twelve Years a Slave, there's really, in terms of uh, the deeper questions, the the way that it addresses slavery, there's really no comparison. But there is, you know, the one thing that you get from Django is sort of a representation that didn't exist previous to that in U.S. film history, as far as I'm aware, at least in mainstream uh, right. history, you know, that there was, there's, I've never seen that sort of a black character. But then in terms of like really providing people with uh, uh, a deep look into what it does psychologically and emotionally to be mm -hmm. uh, at least in the U.S. system of slavery. Right. Ooh, boy, man. <laughs> yeah. He leaves you no space. That's something like another comparison between between the two. Like you were you were talking about, um, you know, the uh, the language, uh, for example, right. that, uh, that gets used. The language is a big thing with 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 uh with 12 years of slave okay in django part of the problem i had with it honestly is that most you know almost all of the text almost all of the words spoken you know is spoken by white people maybe samuel o. jackson samuel o. jackson i don't even know he he might have as many lines as uh as the title character of django for all, right. for all i know because you know but most of the lines are spoken by white people most of the interaction and is going on is between Dr. King Schultz, uh, between uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Calvin Candy, you know, uh, between these various white people talking about black people. Right. Black people in sort of these, you know, hushed, you know, almost monosyllabic, you know, one syllable kind of terms. Whereas you get to 12 Years a Slave, uh, basically the script is not meant to be realistic because the script is based mainly on how the the book was written, how the 12, you know, how Solomon Northup wrote the book in 1853 right. uh, from his very black middle-class you know, standpoint right. at that time, which was meant to be written not for black people, uh, but meant to be written for white people to persuade them of how evil slavery was. Right, right. So the, the, the target target audience was the, was the white possible abolitionist. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and that, that means that in some ways, even if the film, I feel like the film is more responsible to black imaginations, black black understanding and knowledge, um, black thought of how how slavery was for us. 
I also feel like if it's based on the book, well, the book is responsible to the white potential abolitionists, like you said, right. you know, right. white middle-class church-going abolitionists who can't bear to hear these uh, these horrible, unchristian horrors, you know, being wreaked upon black bodies and, and definitely wouldn't have been able to stand seeing it actually happen, you know? Right. But so film does in a lot of ways because it's based on the book, even though the book is written by a black man and everything like that, it still in some ways is trying to appeal to whiteness right. because the book was trying to appeal to whiteness. That That's something I probably wouldn't have noticed except how heavily the film as Steve McQueen uh, and, and uh, John Ridley, uh, you know, composed the film and, and, the, and, and the script. Right. They relied heavily on the way Solomon Northup wrote. It sounds very kind of stilted, almost funny yeah. to hear people say, you know, talk the way they talk, you know? Exactly, yeah. It is a little jarring in that in that in that way. You know, that's that's one of those signifiers of you know class, yes. socioeconomic sort of class, and also but really ultimately of connection to whiteness, of right. uh responding to whiteness. I, I thought that those kind of class signifiers were very much there, even though I think 12 Years a Slave also uh, reverses that when Solomon, uh, later on in the film, starts singing with the black people, you know, the other black people, uh, you know, who were basically slaves for life, you right. know, and, and the, the way that they, the way that you get through being a slave for life is, uh, you know, things like singing, things like, right. you know, doing things that sort of take you out of yourself so that you feel, you know, things aren't so bad and he finally starts singing with them i think it's after he destroys his violin right you know yeah it's almost like he accepts his status at that point he was resisting yeah. until then and then uh at the point that he has to uh you know will the whip is is a sort of a turning point for him, I think, that he yeah. really recognizes. Because at that point, he has no control over uh, his body at all. He is an instrument of his master completely at that point. And, yes. Yeah, and so that, yeah, that was a sort of a really critical turning point in terms of uh, how he was uh, positioned in relation to his slaveness versus his past life. 